in, uh, I think it was July or August of 2022. So uh, we, I don't know if this is a rapid pace or a slow pace, but we are near the end. This is the final sermon. Next week, uh, we will, I will start a series in first and probably second Samuel as well. So first and second Samuel, um, I'm not sure what I'm titling it yet. It could change throughout the week or even the next month, but you can prepare yourself. It will not uh, be a, a three-year sermon. Uh, it's a narrative, so we'll probably handle bigger chunks. I won't spend, you know, two weeks on every individual name that you see in chapter one and what those all mean, but uh, we'll hit the narrative portion certainly. And so next week will be at least chapter one, maybe even chapter one through three, but probably more of an intro Um Excited for that. Uh, you know, just if you're new here, we, we, our commitment is verse by verse, line by line through scripture. Um, I have no plan. I have no 20 year plan or 10 year plan. I didn't choose for Samuel to two weeks ago or last week, maybe. Um, but, um, I, I, what, what I've tried to do is just alternate Old and New Testament and then tried to also alternate the genres. So last time we were in the Old Testament, we were in Ecclesiastes, which is much more of a poetic, prophetic book. Now we're going to go, and then we came, obviously, an epistle here. So now we're going to go to a big narrative section, which are a different way of, just a different genre of scripture, which are really fun to contrast with. So anyway, prepare yourself for that. And I want you, as we enter into the last week of Romans, I want to see how Romans ends. These benedictions, well, of course, we would say they're inspired, but why are they here? What do they, what do, they do for us, the reader, the hearer, for the Christian. My question for you today is, are you a pessimistic or an optimistic Christian? I'll say that again. I'm not talking about your natural disposition. But is Christianity an optimistic religion or a pessimistic? Is your faith one that matters? And I'm not talking about an optimism merely that someday there will be heaven. We all should be hopeful over death. We must be. But I'm talking about in the life we live today, do we believe that God is at work and is redeeming all things? As I was preparing this, I was thinking of all just in the last couple weeks, personal discouragements, prayers that I keep praying that don't seem to get answered in the way I want, spiritual warfare that I face, many of you face, temptations, Regret, and then the news cycle, which is, you know, it's the multi-billion dollar industry of pessimism, right? Now, when I say this, we know from our study in Romans, we are to be discerning people. And woe to the one who refuses to discern, who is willfully naive and would not discern good from evil, through a renewed mind, kind of at the altar of some idea of, you know, I'm just a simple person, I'm just a you know, happy person. No, we are to discern good from evil. However, where does that leave us? Because when you start to discern good from evil, it leaves you in a hard spot at times. I, I like, I've said this before, but I like the days. I miss the day. I opine for the days at times. When I first entered vocational ministry 22 years ago, and I was an extremely naive youth pastor, and I just thought everybody who, every church was a good church. Everybody who said they were Christian was a Christian. And like, you know, if we just did a few fun games and shared the gospel, however I shared it back then, you know, people would just thrive and come to Jesus, you know. You go know, through some church splits and you see people reject the faith and 
You just start to discern your own heart and have to repent of sin. And it's dark. We've seen, even in the last generation, 22 years, you know, we started out, 22 years ago we were still having water balloon fights and all kinds of fun stuff as a youth group. And now we're, with the youth, we're talking about transgenderism and government and those things that I didn't want to talk about, but we can't avoid now. Where does this leave us then? I mean, what's the view of the world that we should have in our life? Do we barely make it? Should we all be thinking about moving to South Dakota because of the laws of our government today? Is our whole life one of watching those gates for false teachers? Or the news cycle as the culturally will, culture willfully shifts to a Romans 1 world all over again, a world of judgment. Is that the prognosis? I am convinced that many Christians, while rightly separating from sin, rightly wanting to be holy, and separating individually from sin, they easily fall into the defeatist mindset of nihilism. as present in the world as individual acts of sin are. So, again, the world is not merely the individual acts of sin, but it's also a sinful paradigm, a hopeless paradigm. We call that nihilism today. There's no hope in this world. There's no morality. There's no virtue. All you have to do is look around you. It's very easy for Christians to fall into that. We may separate from sinful acts, but not from a sin-based view of the world. Now Paul's eschatology, we see this already. His view of how we should gaze is this. All things will work out for the good of those who call him and love him and are called according to his purpose, period. Romans 8. There will be a future revival of the ethnic Jews. Romans 10 and 11. Praise God, there will be many who will convert to Christ. And, verse 20, God will soon crush Satan under your feet. He will eradicate sin and death and wickedness. But the question remains, what example do we have here in Scripture? Are we a happy Christian? Should we be? And why? Are we an optimistic or pessimistic? What was Paul and his companions? Do we have any hints here from Scripture? We know that we are in the great battle. And this is the end of the story, and we're constantly at war. But are we happy warriors? You can see the big picture. We defeated warriors. Let's stand for the reading of God's holy word. Romans 16, 20-27. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater. Dare you to use that as a baby name. My kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is hosting me in the whole city and in the whole of the church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. Verse 25, not a him who is able to strengthen you 
according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ago, but has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all the nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith, to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. This ends the reading of God's holy word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. The letter from the living God. These are God's living words, and they impart life to us even as it's read and spoken. Now, can you imagine you were Paul and Tertius, Tertius, sorry if I pronounce his name wrong, (laughs) find out someday, who was the scribe. So so Paul at this point, I I think you can picture the room, he's a a pretty old man. In in fact, probably in in that context, he's probably fairly elderly. So no offense to you on different ages, but Paul would have been in his 60s, and that would have been fairly fairly near the end in that culture that day. This man has been beaten and shipwrecked and betrayed multiple, multiple times. He is on his way to Jerusalem despite people telling him not to go. Knowing that he probably will get killed there. They they hate him there. But he wants to preach the gospel to his own kinsmen to say, look at the work of God in my life. I have a word to the, from the Lord for you. And then he's going to go on to Rome. He wants to preach in the city of Rome. And then he's going to go on to Spain. So there's no re- retirement type mentality for Paul. But I want you to think about that. I mean, Paul has all reasons of anybody to be defeated, to be unhappy. Can you imagine beaten five times, shipwrecked three times, all the things he talks about in Second Corinthians? Probably at this point they've already happened. I, I would suspect, I think this is one of his last letters, at least most of them. I mean, can you imagine writing this? I also have a question. I, I wonder, did Paul know that he was writing Holy Scripture? Now, we know it's inspired. Somebody maybe can look that up sometime and just see what other scholars say. But I, I wonder, did Paul know he was writing the very words of God? Or was he just a really faithful man interpreting the Old Testament, writing a, a, really a letter of love and truth to a congregation that he loved? May he know that, that he was being inspired in that sense that his letter would last in Holy Scripture forever, that it was the very words of God, or did he just know, just was so convinced of the truthfulness of this? So in that sense, in the former, like, he was kind of robotic. Well, I'm just going to write now whatever God tells me, yada, yada, yada. It'll, it'll last anyway, right? God will take care of any errors I write. Or was it just he so believed this, that this is what, what he held firmly in his own heart as well? I don't know exactly the answer to that. But maybe it's both true. But we know this. Paul was no mere intellect. No interest in being some academic who just sat in his high tower and taught the students once a month, once a week. He he believed this. He lived this. The gospel had changed his life. And so he comes to the end of his letter And it's almost as if he's saying, yo, I'm almost done with the letter. 
Who else wants to give a shout out? And all the guys in the room with him, all his traveling companions, hey, I want to say something too. You've gotten to do all the greetings. Now I want to give a greeting. So now we have all these men, some of whom we know, Timothy. Some, we've heard of Jason, Lucius, and then there's a Sosipater, his kinsman, Tertius, Gaius, Erastus, Quartus, another good baby name. They all greet you. So as he said this, everybody participates. And they greet him warmly, and they know this letter is going out to this Roman church. This Roman church, by the way, in the, in the, in the middle of the, in the center of the Romans one judgment. I mean, they, 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 this is in the, in this, you know, this would be writing to, um, a church today, maybe in the, in the center of, um, Washington DC, right? Or, or, well, we might say St. Paul or Minneapolis at this point. Or Chicago or New York, where, you know, it's a guy maybe in the rural parts like us, and he's writing to this church that's in the, surrounded by just all manner of not only wickedness, but the place where they frame the wickedness, like the Pauls of government. Timothy, Lucius, Jason, Sosipater, Sosopater, whatever it is, Tertius, Erastus, Quartus. Some were wealthy. Some had positions of power. Some were not. All from different quarters of life, different ages, most likely. What do they have in common? Jesus Christ. King Jesus. What else do they have in common? They have a Christ-influenced warmth of fellowship amongst these men. They love each other. They have a warm fellowship, and they want to share it with others. So we see here at the end of the letter as it it kind of drags on because there's all these greetings, all these people that Paul has, all these relationships throughout the Christian world. Romans 16 is just full of this, greeting after greeting after greeting. And they just, it overflows from them. I want to share this with the Roman church. Some of whom they know, but Paul certainly has never been there. One of the implications we have here is that it is not enough to merely on paper love each other. Our, our fellowship should be a warm fellowship. We should be friendly people. And if you're not a friendly person, put on friendliness. If you're not a gentle person, put on gentleness. Right? If you're not a discerning person, you've got to learn how to discern. That, that's just that's Christian character, right? But it's also Christian growth. Church should be known as this. This is fellowship. Again, look at the letter of Romans. This is fellowship that comes out of not, you know, a bunch of just namby-pamby worship services and big events, but deep theology, truth. Truth frees us. It convicts us, and then it frees us, and then it does more than that. It grows us back together again. Far from doctrine dividing people, as we hear so often said today, oh, doctrine divides. Doctrine actually unites and frees us because it forces us upward and forward and outward. I want to say this. Churches that have de-emphasized doctrine for the sake of trying to appease everybody. Do they have warm fellowship that's sincere? Or legalistic churches that have all these extra rules of separatism or... or, 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 or or morality that is just pumped, law-based? Do they breed warm fellowship 
or fear and suspicion. Only true doctrine and corresponding true worship will kill the self-absorbed mindset of the old self. Only the gospel preached faithfully and articulated in all of its facets will protect us from a fear-based works righteousness. And let me say this, only these hard doctrines like election and predestination, they are meant to free us, to give us a confidence in the Lord, not to give us something intellectually to argue about. They are meant to kill the sin and the sinful mindset that we inherited from our forefathers. Not merely individual sin, but to change our direction of how we view things. Only the big picture of God's redemptive story will renew the mind to break through the barriers which divide Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, old and young, and a multitude of other divisions. If we do not preach sound doctrine and go back to the basics again and again and again, the thing is we won't stop doing things, but eventually it'll only be about doing things. Endless ministries and busyness. These things leave us to our own devices. And in the church context, we don't have good doctrine. We don't know how to agree, how to disagree, and how to treat one another. Remember Romans 12, 13, and 14. How many of you want to be in a church where there's massive Jew and Gentile divides there? And yet Paul says, you don't start your own church. You can overcome this. You should overcome this. Why would I already tell you? Go deep into the doctrine and then have a renewed mind and learn what things you're to fight over and what things you're not to fight over. But you don't even know what those are unless you first have a doctrinal truth that unites us. Because, as we see in Romans, there's far more than ever unites us that would ever divide us. We don't keep the gospel front and center and the worship of God reverent and true. Fellowship will suffer. And yet we do these things, look at the fellowship that arises. It's almost like this. The image I was thinking about this as I was preparing this week. You know, what divided, you know, what divided the people at the Tower of Babel? What did God do? Well, he changed their language, right? They couldn't work together, right? All of a sudden they're suspicious. Of each other. You know, they, they don't know how to do basic manners because they can't pass the hammer. They can't, they're in constant conflict, created a ton of conflict when God changed their language. Well, in the same way, as Christians, we should never settle to be a Tower of Babel type Christianity where we don't have a common language. See, doctrine and truth and worship and, and membership together actually gives us a common language which unites us. See, we come from different backgrounds, just like the Tower of Babel. And, and, and now, we have a new vocabulary in the church that actually draws us together again as unity. All these different people that were once divided are now brought together in Christ, in King Jesus. We should never settle for anything less than that. We must cultivate that. Fellowship spurs the desire for good teaching, and good teaching and worship creates warm fellowship. Look at the previous verses. And the statement of truth, how do these affect our relationships with others in the world we live in? So I want you to focus on this. 
Look at the greeting, the final greeting that, that Paul and his friends, all the shout outs they have here. Now, as we blanket this text, and I'm going to make that kind of the main focus, let that be the emphasis, right? What around this text gives us clues? What do they believe that actually enables them and changes them and gives them this warmth of fellowship? What gives them this type of hope that they have and this optimism that they have? How do these men know that which gives them such confidence that the Roman church would receive this letter and would prosper? So three reasons for their warm fellowship and their optimism. Three reasons. Reason number one. What did they know? They knew verse 20. That God will defeat Satan someday. That God will defeat Satan. This is the great end times. This is a great future statement. The God of peace is still at work. Today, what does that look like? Does it look like our nation is a place that has the peace of God? Well, it kind of depends where you look, I suppose. But there is many reasons to be concerned about our land and our culture, and only a fool would not be. And yet, how would have the Roman world been any different, right? <laughs> you know, we think, well, so, you know, I mean, what, what would it have been like to be a bunch of pantheon of gods and have no power and to be the, the Christians in that where if they didn't like you, they, could, they didn't have a, a legal code like we do today, a constitution that was as clear as ours is. They didn't have the religious freedom that we have. And yet they knew that God reigns through Jesus. He made his peace with us through Jesus Christ in times past. Everything for them focused on what did he do? We know what he did in the past. What's he going to do in the future? Remember, Christianity is not you and I making our peace with God. It's about God making his peace with us. He is the great initiator the great author, the great redeemer, the great justifier of the unrighteous. He is the great adopter. It all happened because he chose to save a people, his elect people who were sinners. He made his peace with us already. This peace has already been made. Now what's he doing? He will soon end all conflict. He will crush Satan. Where? Notice here, it doesn't say under his feet. It says under your feet. Does that mean that Satan has no power over the church? That he is weaker than the church? You better believe it does. Where the word of God is preached in spirit and truth, Satan will not win. He cannot. He cannot steal your faith nor your assurance. There is no hint of dualism in the scripture. Now, we have scriptures that talk about the God, you know, he is the God of this world. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And there's a sense in which that's true from the lowest end. But what Paul is doing is here is he's giving us the bigger picture. So even though it doesn't look like God is winning, hold on to verse 20. And what is a confidence in God's promises and the knowledge of what God is doing do to create in us a peace and a fellowship and a joy 
It means that we are in the time that we call, we've seen this in Romans, we're in the already and the not yet, right? All the things that had to happen for final redemption have already taken place. The mystery was revealed in Christ. How were those sacrifices, the blood of goats and sheep, how were they, you know, how was a person forgiven? How, how, do, how, do, how do people have peace with one another? What about judgment? Who rules all things? We send a son, the God-man, Jesus Christ. This has already taken place. What we have in Christ, redemption, adoptness, forgiveness, unity, or renewed mind, this is already yours. It's given to you as a Christian. And if you are not a Christian today, you will have none of these things. But when you believe and trust in Jesus Christ, acknowledging, agreeing with God that you are a sinner, and that all the gods of the world today will only bring about more judgment. But when you've come and come before the face of God and agreed with God, and then repented of your sins and turned to Christ, all these are already yours. And if you're not living like it today, Examine yourself. Ask yourself, what do I need to repent of? How have I given back into the mindset of the world? How am I letting the gods of this culture influence me? What does it mean to have a renewed mind in Christ? What does it mean to repent to the Lord and believe God? It may mean you need to take some extra time in Romans and read God's promises and evaluate your life and pray and abide. This is, But these things are already yours, Christian. What hasn't happened yet? The eradication of all our enemies. But it will. And here it says it will not happen someday. It will happen soon. Now, it's been 2,000 years. And it's, but, the, but it's still soon. We don't know when that will happen. But it says it will be soon. And that's how we are to think, isn't it? What does this look like? Look at verse 20b. Therefore, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is all of grace. It's all of God's gift. Not only Jesus Christ, but the knowledge of who Jesus Christ was, is, and what he's doing in the world today. This is all a gift of Christ who is with us today. When we do things God's way, we are suppressing Satan right now. He cannot win. He will not win. The God of peace, notice this, he doesn't say, well, you know, the God of peace will, I mean, he, he'll squeak by a victory in the end. May go into overtime. Might be a four-time overtime thriller, but he'll win. Right? Hedge your bets on that. Look at the language here. The God of peace will soon crush Satan. What? Not by a, by a, by a drone strike somewhere, but under your feet. A human being, the people of God. United with Christ, under your feet. Think about that. That's reason number one. What does that do to inform our fellowship? Reason number two. He is able and he is strengthening you today. So not merely that he can strengthen you, but he is strengthening you today. Look at verse 25. Not to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for ages long ago. How are you strengthened? Not merely saved for eternity from judgment, but actually being strengthened in the gospel. See, the gospel is not meant to merely give you a ticket to heaven. 
It's meant to change everything about you today. And it's not merely that you have to look back 20 years ago at the day you first believe and say, man, I, I got to hang on to those fumes from back then. No, it's a continual supply of strength that God gives us. That's what we get when we come to worship, when we gather as a church, when you read your Bible, when you turn to the Lord, when you pray. God of peace is present. We see that in Hebrews, right? He's always interceding for us. We see that in Romans earlier. The Spirit groans, with us, groans for us with words that we can't comprehend. My great high priest, whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me that we sing in that new song. But not that we are strengthened, but who is able to strengthen us? God does. He does this through the preaching of Jesus Christ today. Not yesterday, not someday, but today. Friends, something cosmic happened in AD 30. 30 years before, 25 years before this book was written, this letter was written, that God, man, Jesus Christ, at the end of his perfect substitutionary life, was offered up as a propitiation for the sins of God's elect and for the curse upon creation. When he died, the thunder struck and the temple curtain was torn in two. God was showing something physically about what had happened spiritually and what will happen physically again someday. The barrier between God and man. The barrier of sin and judgment had been taken care of. It worked. It had been paid in full. So now God's children can enter in. There's a new and living way. We know the Lord. This is what Paul is saying. He's saying all the mystery. Not that the people in the Old Testament didn't know the Lord. They did. But the, the total of the, the package that was going to be delivered was not realized in full. Everything pointed forward to this. All Everything that happened from Genesis 3 and onward was preparation for this. It was a mystery as to when and how it was going to happen, but it did happen. The gospel is not just you are forgiven. That's certainly included. The gospel is the good news of the reign of Jesus Christ. It is good news, not just a good option or decent advice or a suggestion. It's the declarative news that is loud and clear, the mystery we, we see the total picture now. It was in a God-man, Jesus Christ. He was the Messiah. He was the Messiah for the Jews and the Gentiles. And the results is we obey the Lord by faith. Remember what Paul has said in Romans? Romans 1 and 2. There is a wickedness of mankind and a judgment upon the whole world. Both for the lawbreaker and the lawkeeper. One thing that Romans does for us is to remind us that we are all alike in the first Adam. Whatever your skin color it is, whether you're male or female, your educational level, who your parents were, whether you grew up in the church or not, you are all alike in Adam. You are united in your first father. You sin and you rebel because of who your parent is. You sin and rebel because you were born a sinner. Cursed from birth. In chapter 3 and 4, we read that Christ, who was Christ? 
He was the new Adam, the seed of Abraham. He was, he was genetically a human being. He was truly God and truly man. He was um, in the family of Abraham. So that all worked out. But he also was the new Adam. He was a second representative of the human race. Where the first Adam, who's our first parent, we inherit his sin nature. Now the new Adam who never sinned, born of a virgin, we are now grafted into him. He represents us now. The question is, in the world today, you're either, you, who's your daddy of one, one parent, one or the other? You're either in Adam or in Christ. In Adam, your natural father that unites everybody, whether it's Saddam Hussein or some little child being born this week. The world is under the power of judgment. And the longer you live, you only participate in that even more. So the good news of the gospel is good news that Christ is reigning and ruling. Here's who he is. It's the mystery revealed. And you can repent. You must change. You must turn. But God has done it for you in Christ. He's granted you not only forgiveness, but justice and adoption. Chapters 5 and five through 7 of Romans, we covered that. What does it mean to be sanctified, made Christ-like? That's because we're adopted by the Father. We have a great inheritance. Chapter 8 and 9, our God has a great, mysterious, and yet immediate plan for His church. All things will work out for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Not only this, in chapters 10 alone, we find the gracious plan of God. Paul's ethnic family, the Jews, there's a future repentance, revival for them. We still haven't seen that. They will come and acknowledge Jesus Christ. Many of them. Chapter 12 through 15 says, how do we now live? Well, we live today with a renewed mind. Not only facing the world, but dealing with one another, loving one another in the church. Jesus Christ is the priest, prophet, and king. He is our Passover redemption and atonement. Since Genesis 3, when the world was cursed, now the serpent's heel has been bruised by Christ and soon will be crushed under the feet by the church. We have found in Romans that the gospel works. Legally it works. Right? All sin legally has to be paid for. Otherwise God could be accused of being a favorite, showing favoritism or not being just. And yet he was just. He did pay every sin in full on his son. And because Jesus died and rose again, he's also the justifier. So the question is this. If God shows you, we get that. How does he justify that choice? He justified it because he sent his son to pay the penalty. That you and I can have peace with God and be in his presence forever. Romans is about the gospel working. Not only does it work, but it works relationally. God has adopted us again. Not only are we Christ, Christ is our new Adam, but God is now our adopted father. God is the one who's revealed his great plan. And wherever the gospel spreads, the kingdom will grow in power. So now we read this 2,000 years later. And 2,000 years have passed. Since these final words of the benediction. And the letter presumably made it to Rome and it's been 
cared for as part of God's holy scripture and preserved for us today. And Christianity grew. And converted Romans. And as the decay of judgment was upon the Roman Empire, simultaneously the church was growing until Constantine declared it to be the official religion. And 2,000 years of history have passed. And the church has moved from Africa and the Middle East to then Eastern Europe and then Western Europe and then America. And now as we see, we don't know what's happening in America, but we know we need God's mercy in America. We see at the same time, simultaneously, the church is not losing power. Just God is making it grow in Africa and the South and even the Far East. China, those places you never expected. And may there be a revival in our land today. So be strengthened by this. God is able and he is working. And finally, the third thing. So I've already highlighted the kingdom of God is growing today. Here verse 26. That mystery which has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings has been made known to all the nations. Call this perspicuity, meaning this. Whether you're smart or not so smart, whether you're Jew or Gentile, whatever your ethnicity, you are a human being and capable of reasoning in a different way than the smartest animal that ever lived. We're of a different kind. We are God's image bearers. And the prophetic writings is clear to everybody who would read it. Everybody who would read it by faith. Through the prof- known to all the nations. It's a key that works in every people group. Because every people group, despite their skin color and culture and religious baggage and, and, and moral codes and all these other things, their real problem is a sin problem, a re- rebellion problem against the God who created them. And Jesus Christ came to redeem people of all nations, to redeem the nations. According to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. So meeting this, the point is not just that the peoples would know the gospel, they would obey the gospel. There's an obedience of faith. Their lives would be transformed. And when the lives are transformed, families are transformed. And then communities are transformed. Eventually laws get transformed, as we've seen historically. Therefore, these men can give a shout out of hope because they know that however dim the light looked, it was a true light. And your their work and their words matter and your work and your words matter. He gives us freedom, purpose, and practical application to every sphere of your life by faith through a renewed mind. Obey the Lord. Finally, he ends in a way that he's already ended in chapter 11. Now he benediction again. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. So as they're looking at one another with warm fellowship and thinking of the Roman church, their gaze is, can look at one another through the eyes of faith and obedience and warmth because their gaze is upon the glory of God. This isn't your plan or my plan. This is holy God's plan. 
That isn't your glory or my glory. It's God's glory. He is to be central in your life. Are you living to his glory? Each and every one. This is what makes us happy people because we have a real purpose. This is what makes warm, optimistic Christianity. Joyful Christianity. Even in the midst of hardship and sorrow. We don't deny hardship and sorrow. We don't fake about those things. We can do those in context. As we gaze upward and forward and onward, we know the promises of God and the purposes of God. God is reigning, now live freely. Move upward and onward and forward, not backward, inward, and downward. With warm, confident fellowship in the obedience of the faith. So as we take communion today, whatever circumstance you find yourself in, or circumstances, remember, this is, God is reigning and ruling. God is on your side because he made Jesus Christ, sent Jesus Christ to die for you and rise again, and you have peace with God. Let that give you a confidence. Whatever challenges, hard conversations, areas of repentance, unknown things, worries that you have in this coming week. They had them. We have them. But their fellowship was warm and sweet because it was informed by a God who is actually working in this world. Amen. The end. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for this glorious book of Romans. And Father, help us to obey you with the obedience of faith. Father, I pray, God, that you would do the great work of the gospel in our church today resounded again and again as you did last week and the week before and you will next week. Father, as we take Holy Communion, will you bless your people? Will you give us a somber repentance and a holy confidence? In your name we pray. Amen.